Hi everyone, I'm glad we can come together in a continued journey through the Gospel of John. I'm Colin, and in this study, Pastor Charles Broderson picks up in the second half of chapter 19. The setting is Jerusalem, and Jesus is dutifully bearing his own cross as he walks to Golgotha to willingly give his life for our sins. Through the cross, God brought humanity back to himself. As Jesus poured out his life for us, everything that stood between us and our God our sin, our shame, our wandering, our thirsting has all been brought to an end. The reason Jesus came into the world was complete. The work for our salvation was accomplished. Now, as you know, we've been going through the Gospel of John with this theme, life in his name. And John is the one that has given us this theme in this Gospel. He writes in John chapter 20 that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now once again, John has not written an exhaustive biography of the life and times of Jesus, but he has hand these stories, these sermons, these signs with a purpose. And that is that the reader, the hearer, might believe certain things about Jesus. First, that Jesus is Messiah. We've been talking about this for weeks and months. I think it's been over a year. Jesus is Messiah. He is God's anointed king and deliverer, not just for Israel, but for the world. And Jesus is not just a king, he's not just a human being, but he is the eternal son of God who has come into the world, who eternally existed in community with the Father, and he has come into the world to bring us life. John wants us to believe these things about Jesus in order that we might experience deep, lasting life in the name of Jesus. Now, as we pointed out before, John connects what we believe, what we trust in, what we center our lives around to the quality of life that we experience. Because each of us are believing in something, we are trusting in something or someone and that belief is taking us somewhere. It's either building us up or it's bringing us down. It's either bringing us further into life or further into death. I think for each of us, sometimes it's hard to know do I have life in the name of Jesus? You ever do that just kind of throughout the week, just kind of take your pulse? Where am I at? What am I trusting? Why am I feel like I'm often so disappointed? You know, you may have a perfect plan for your life. It may all be going quite well. You may have had the education that you planned on having, the career, marriage, or singleness, depending on your preference. But even as things have worked out for you, you feel this weight, this 
meaninglessness, this purposelessness. And the reason is, is because we were made for God. And any time that we center our lives, we focus ourselves, the gifts, the abilities, the life that we've been given on anything other than God, meaninglessness sets in. It doesn't have this fulfillment, this deep satisfaction to it. I remember one time listening to Pastor Ray Ortland say this. He said, beliefs that let us down are like prophetic whispers saying, don't you see where this is going? And to me, I think that these are a gift from the Spirit of God drawing us into the life in Jesus. You know what we've been talking about for weeks and weeks and weeks, it's not just that we would know about Jesus, not just that we would come here on Sunday morning and you know, do our Christian duty of gathering together, maybe serving these things, but that we would actually live a life of abiding in Jesus, that he would be our special friend everywhere we go in everything that we do, that we would live a life in the presence of Jesus. That is what it means, or maybe even just the beginning of what it means, to have life in the name of Jesus. And so this morning, I would like each of us just to consider afresh that question. Let's just take our spiritual pulse this morning. What am I believing in? What am I trusting and centering my life around? Do I have life? In its name. And here, John wants to offer us to center our lives, to maybe even recenter our lives around the person of Jesus. Now, as I said this morning, we've come to the climactic moment of this gospel. It is Jesus' greatest sign, it is his moment where he will be most glorified, and the Father will be most glorified through him. The cross really is the great intersection of John's gospel where all of his major themes are brought together. And, you know, if we were doing just a, you know, gathering class, we could probably look at all of those major themes this morning and consider each one of them and how they intersect. But we'll just point out a few before we look at our text this morning. But everything in John's gospel has really been pointing to, preparing for, and hinges on this moment where Jesus will be lifted up. Remember, this is this double meaning that John uses here. Jesus is both glorified, but he is simultaneously lifted up on the cross for the world to see just how much the Father loves the world. This is God's great moment of glory where Jesus accomplishes his task of making known the love of the Father, the character of the Father. Now, as we've been reading up till this point, we see that there's multiple things happening. At the cross, Jesus steps forward as Israel's true king, its Messiah. Uh, you know, John's gospel is filled with irony. 
And isn't it so interesting that there, before Jesus goes to the cross, that he is crowned with a crown of thorns, that he is arrayed in purple garments, that he is declared not just by the Roman guard, but by the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, this is the king of the Jews. Not only that, but there's a placard that hangs above or sits above Jesus' cross and written in Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. The three major languages of the world at that time, this declaration, the king of the Jews. Now, isn't it interesting that Pilate has been waffling so much during the trial of Jesus, and yet this is the thing that he is firm on. All of a sudden, what I've written, I've written. Oh, who showed up all of a sudden, right? Why this? Because all of this is by the determination and foreknowledge of God. This deep, deep irony where the king of the Jews is declared before the world, here is Israel's Messiah. You know, the prophets foretold in Psalm 2, Psalm 72, and other places that Israel's Messiah would not just be king over Jerusalem or king over Israel, but through his faithfulness to Yahweh, he would be given the inheritance of the nations. He would become king of the world. And we see that John has been developing this theme all throughout his gospel. Jesus is not just the king of Israel, but he is the king of the world. He is not just the savior of Israel, but he is also the savior of the world. And all of this is finally revealed here in the cross. At the cross, Jesus is revealed as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just as John the baptizer declared him to be in the beginning of this gospel. Here at the cross, the meaning of John's statement is clear. The death of Jesus takes place on the afternoon when the Passover lambs are being slaughtered in the temple. Just as the priests are preparing a lamb for the nation to take away its sin, so God is also preparing his lamb to take away not just the sin of the nation, but the sin of the world. Jesus, the true Passover lamb, so the world's judgment can be removed, so the world can be brought near to God. Jesus is delivering not just Israel, but the world from a deeper and darker slavery than that of Egypt. He's delivering us from sin, from judgment, from death. And the last one I'll point out is that here at the cross, Jesus is finally revealed as the true temple. You remember in John chapter 2 when Jesus goes into Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple. And the religious leaders say to him, what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus says to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they're like, what are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple. Who do you think you are? And John tells us he was not speaking of that physical temple, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. And this is this major theme of John's gospel we see again and again and again. The temple is not just a place, it's representative of where humans meet with God. Where we come into the presence of God. And what John has been telling us is that's not a place, that's a person. 
That is Jesus, Messiah. He is the one who brings us into the presence of God and is here at the cross where his body will be torn open like the veil that is torn open, bringing us into the presence of God forever. Jesus is the true king. He is the true Passover lamb. He is the true temple, the place where people meet with the life-giving presence of God. Now, for all that John has done in building up to the cross, it's interesting that his description of the crucifixion is minimal. John covers the crucifixion in one verse. He says, there they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Not only that, but John's Jesus is minimal in his words from the cross. Jesus speaks this word of transferring his mother to his beloved disciple. And then we have two phrases from the cross, and that's it. Now, John is very simple and minimal in his crucifixion scene. And I think the temptation for us is to fill in the details from the other gospels or from what we know historically about the brutality of Roman crucifixion. But I believe if we do that, we will actually be missing the very details that John wants us to see, to contemplate and understand. And so this morning, we're just gonna focus on these two phrases that Jesus says from the cross and the final sign of John's gospel. Now, Jesus' two final words from the cross, the first is this. He says, I am thirsty. Now, it's not surprising that Jesus says that he is thirsty. Death by crucifixion would bring terrible dehydration to the body, and it was a brutal, prolonged death by asphyxiation. Many of us know this. They say to die from dehydration, your, bodily, your body internally feels like it's on fire. And so maybe this is why Jesus is claim, you know, exclaiming that he's so thirsty. What is surprising, though, is that Jesus speaks of his thirst, but not of his mortal wounds. We would expect him to say, my head, because it has been pierced with thorns. We would expect him to say, my back, because it has been ripped to shreds by the cat of nine tails. We would expect him to say, my face, my face, because it is beaten, swollen, and bloodied. Or to say, my hands and my feet, because they have been pierced through with nails and are securing him to the cross. But out of all of these things, Jesus speaks of his deep, deep thirst. Now, John comments on the saying that Jesus said this fulfilling the scripture. And so automatically, we should be looking for the deeper meaning behind these words. The results of Jesus's cry is that wine vinegar is brought to him to drink. And this is definitely part of what John is talking about. Psalm 69, in fact, describes in specific details the suffering of the cross. 
It describes one who is innocently suffering and in fact being overcome by their suffering. I just want to cherry pick a few verses out of Psalm 69 for us to just take in this morning. It begins this way, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck and I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. And many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me. A few verses down it reads, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my family, a stranger to my mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Do not hide your face from your servant, but answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me, deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They gave, excuse me, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. It's incredible. Psalm 69, over a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus, describes in detail what's going on in the mind, the thoughts of this sufferer. We can clearly see that this is a foretelling of Jesus' own suffering and crucifixion. But along with that, I believe that the mention of thirst should also, and maybe even more specifically, take us back to the many times in this gospel that Jesus has offered to quench the deep soul thirst of individuals. Remember, there's the conversation with the woman at the well about living water. Jesus offers it to her because he has an endless supply of it. In fact, he is the source. And if she drinks from him, she will never thirst again. In chapter 6, we see it again with the multitudes. Jesus claims not only to fill people's hunger, that he is the bread of life, but also to satisfy their deep thirst. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life in them. And again, in John 7, he speaks of possessing living water and that those who came to him would have rivers of it springing up in their own lives. And Jesus has been saying this again and again in this gospel, that he is the very thing that the world is looking for and longing for, but cannot find, cannot get to, cannot satisfy on their own. 
He is the light coming into the world. He is the door. He is the good shepherd. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is seeing it again and again from almost every angle that there is life only in his name. That all the meaning, glory, joy, and peace that humans seek is only found in him. And that all the other things that you and I drink from, that we look for identity or acceptance, worth, hope, or joy in, will only leave us thirsty, dissatisfied, and disillusioned in the end. But what human beings are looking for cannot be found by humans in this world. It must come from outside of this world. In an act of sheer grace from God, he sends the one and only son into the world to satisfy our deep soul thirst. Think now about the horror about the confusion where we hear Jesus cry out from the cross, I am thirsty. Has the living water run out? What is happening to Jesus? He said he could satisfy every living soul. He said that he is the fountain of living waters. What is happening here? But John is showing us how Jesus must do what only Jesus can do. The living water must be poured out. It must be emptied so that we can be filled. It must be crushed so the water can trickle out. So that we can wash and be clean. That we can drink and we can be filled See, Jesus is experiencing the ultimate thirst. He is in some sense being separated from God, crushed for us, so that we might be brought near to God, that we might be made whole. Jesus is experiencing here on the cross the judgment of sin, but it's not his sins, we know this. As the prophet Isaiah said, he is being cut off for the sins of his people. Jesus is experienced here, here on the cross the condition of all of humanity. We are cut off from God and the life that is in him. You see, after humanity's rebellion against God, humans were expelled from the garden. That's the temple, the presence of God. We're told in Genesis that man and woman used to walk with God in the cool of the day, that they experienced deep intimacy and fellowship with him and with one another, harmony with them and the created world. But because of their rebellion, they had now been separated from that easy access to God's presence and a new reality was established in which the way to the presence of God was blocked by a destroying angel. Mark Sayers in his book, Oh, what is it called? Strange Days, that's what it's called. I almost said strange words. <laughs> sure. He says this, humanity finds itself wandering east of Eden, aware at a deep level that it is expelled, yet also aware that Eden exists. 
the space of true freedom, of true communion with the divine, where humans are truly recognized as his children, able to approach God without fear, to commune with him freely, to see others minus the lens of sin. This is no longer accessible. Instead, their fate, God's judgment has exposed vulnerable to the forces of chaos that they themselves have participated in unleashing. Because humans are spiritually homeless now, we dream of holy spaces, utopias, motherlands, golden ages, and soulmates. We yearn for reconnection to the divine, readmittance to the sacred and pure space where wandering, thirsting souls. This wandering, he says, this lostness is the essence of humanity's essential weakness. Detachment from their true home in God. And with that, the curse of mortality. In other words, humans are wandering, thirsting creatures because we have lost our true home and life source, which is the presence and life of God. And scripture makes it again clear again and again that humanity can't get to God. The way is blocked. No one in their own effort or moral goodness can get an audience with God, and yet he is the very thing our souls need and long for. And this is the very reason why Jesus is here. He has been sent into the world to bring us back into the love of God. And now we can begin to understand what Jesus is saying and doing here at the cross. Here on the cross, Jesus' thirsty state is a deep insight that Jesus is in some sense being separated from God the Father, the life the love, the presence that he had always known. He is taking up the role, the place, taking on the judgment of humans so that he can give us the life God always wanted for us, the life that God created us for. Jesus, the fountain of living waters, is being drained and emptied of life so we can drink from him and be filled and satisfied. Paul the Apostle put it this way, God made him who had never sinned to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is why Jesus cries out from the cross, I am thirsty. But that's not all he says. He says something else. He says this, it is finished. This is fascinating, isn't it? Because this is the moment where Jesus is utterly weak, helpless, completely paralyzed. He's pinned to the cross and he says something to this degree. Victory! Completion! It's done! I think anybody standing there would have been just thoroughly confused by this statement. What are you talking about? Complete. Filled up. You know, this is what people in the first century would actually write on a bill when it was fully paid. So the question is, what was paid in full? What was completed? 
And I think Peter the Apostle, in his letter to the early church, he has the most succinct answer for this. He says this, For Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Peter says that what was completed at the cross was bringing humanity back to God. Everything that stood between us in the life and presence of God, our sin, our shame, our wandering, our thirsting, has all been brought to an end. Life is now available in Jesus' name. The purpose for which Jesus had been sent into the world has finally come to completion. And actually, John's final sign is the sign that all of this is true. Look at what happens directly after Jesus says these words. It says, now it was the Sabbath day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. Because the Jewish leaders did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. The soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus, and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now the man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows he tells the truth. And he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one that they have pierced. So here it is, the final moments from the cross. Jesus cries out, it is finished. It says he bows his head and releases the spirit. The soldiers come along. They realize he's already dead. They pierce him through. Many believe that they might have pierced through his heart and the sack around the heart that holds all this water. And immediately it says that water and blood flow from Jesus' side. So what is going on here? Well, first of all, we know it means that Jesus is actually dead. Just plain and simple, right? He didn't swoon on the cross as many in history have said he did. He actually truly did die. A professional Roman executioner made sure of it by thrusting a spear into his heart. Jesus is dead. And out flow blood and water. Now John says that this was in fulfillment of scripture, that they will look upon him whom they have pierced. He's quoting from Zechariah 12.10, where it reads these words, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and of supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So there it is. They will look upon him whom they have pierced. Wow, the fulfillment of the prophecy. But that's not all there is. What do the water and the blood mean? And scholars have been wrestling with this for ever. What does it mean? Well, just read on in Zechariah into the next chapter. It says, on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house 
of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse from sin and impurity. You see, in Jesus' moment of being most glorified, he releases his spirit, his side is pierced, and blood and water flow from his side. So now any who are thirsting, those who are in deep need of God's cleansing and forgiveness can experience the living water that Jesus has been offering all along to the world. They can come to the side of Jesus. They can wash and be cleansed. They can drink and they can be filled. Now, as I was thinking about just this scene this week, I was taken back to my childhood. My dad's favorite movie of all time is Ben-Hur. So some of you, yeah, a few of you are like, oh, yeah, yeah, right? The rest of you, you've got some homework to do, okay? So if you are familiar with the 1959 film adaptation of the book Ben-Hur, but it's this scene where the main character, Judah Ben-Hur, I don't have time to go into the whole story. It's an incredible story, by the way. He has come home from slavery, he's been freed, he comes back to Jerusalem, he's thinking that he's gonna have his whole life restored to him and what he finds is that his mother and his sister, the only family that he has, have a death sentence of leprosy. And this just sends him into this tailspin. Just everything that he's been working for to get back to his family, everything is meaningless now. But there's this moment where he realizes he's had these interactions throughout his life, these just small interactions with Jesus. And he realizes in this moment of desperation, if he can get his mother and his daughter, excuse me, his mother and his sister to Jesus, possibly they can be healed. And so he's running around looking for Jesus and looking for his mother and his sister. He's trying to, you know, bring an intersection of these things. Finally, the mother and the sister with their friend find Jesus. You know where they find him? They find him hanging from the cross and he's already dead. And it is this moment in the film where it's just this deep despair. You know, this window of opportunity. They're, they're, you know, flickering hope snuffed out. There he is. All hope is gone. And as they look up and they're beholding him, they have this revelation of who he is and actually what he's doing there on the cross. And they slowly walk away. I just watched it last night again, just to like take it all in again. Because I, I had a few details wrong. But as they, they walk away, they're just contemplating and, and talking about him. And all of a sudden, the sky turns black. Lightning is striking. There's an earthquake, and it begins to rain. And all of a sudden, the scene flashes to this pool of blood at the foot of the cross. And there's more lightning and there's more shaking and just it's like this tumultuous scene. And as they're kind of like cowering in fear, what begins to happen is the rainwater begins to mix and mingle with the blood and it begins to flow from the foot of the cross. And as this happens, a transformation takes place with these two leprous women. They are healed. And the scene, you know, they're just can't believe that they have been healed 
And it's because they have looked to the lifted up one. They have beheld him. And they have been healed. They have been cleansed. And the scene ends where there is just this river of water flowing from the cross. Now, according to the film, the picture is clear. The flowing blood and water from Jesus' side is the sign that atonement for sin has been made. Jesus thirsted and endured the judgment for sin for us in our place. It is finished, paid in full. The way to God, the fountain of living waters, has been opened up through the pierced, wounded side of Jesus. Come, wash, be clean, drink, and be filled with living water. This is the offer of this gospel again and again and again. And so, just to bring us back to where we started, what are we looking for? As we walk out of these doors, as we go back to our everyday lives, to our neighborhoods, to our jobs, to our families, what are we looking for? What will satisfy us? What will give us the deep meaning, purpose, and fulfillment that our hearts long for, that our souls thirst for? And as we enter into this Passion Week, my hope and prayer is that we will keep this victorious work of Jesus close to our hearts and minds. That it is finished. That Jesus became thirsty and empty so we can be filled. And we, like Peter, would say, where else are we going to go? Jesus, you alone have deep, lasting life. And so we will return to him with all of our hearts. In moments where we're tempted to seek fulfillment and power, as the world offers it to us, Fulfillment in pleasure or temptation or anger that we think, oh, that's the thing. If I only get that, if I only have this, control of this, possession of that, that we will remember that Jesus already offers us the fulfillment that our hearts truly long for, and we will look to him for deep soul satisfaction. Or maybe in the moments where we despair about our own lives and their meaning or we feel that we lack identity or purpose, we will remember that this is exactly why Jesus came. To bring us to God. To root us deep into the life-giving presence of God. And we will enjoy him wherever we go and whatever we are doing. In moments of our boredom or our apathy, here is something to live for. Life in the name of Jesus. He thirsted so we can be filled and filled to overflowing. So may we return to him in these moments and may we drink deeply from him. Now as we close out our time in the word together, we have the bread and the cup available to us. Jesus' invitation to each of us to come, to eat, to drink, 
to be satisfied in him. And so we invite you as the band plays to come forward, to do business with Jesus, to pour out your heart. What is your complaint? What is your burden? What is your thirst? Tell Jesus all about it. Take his offer of living water and be satisfied.